Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the December 2018 edition of the State Bar of Texas podcast. This podcast launched in June of this year, and boy, what a journey it's been. With the help of our friends at the Legal Talk Network, we have covered so many topics with a wide array of fascinating speakers and co-hosts. December is also a time when many people think about their resolutions for the following year. Here at the podcast, we resolve to continue bringing you quality content, the type of content that will improve your life and your practice. So what's your resolution? Maybe to help you along, we should look back at some key moments from this past year. Listen carefully. Perhaps reviewing just a few highlights will inspire your 2019. In one of our first episodes, I talked with Anthony Graves, a man who spent nearly two decades in prison, 12 of those on death row, for multiple homicides he did not commit. Anthony, who was exonerated and released in 2010, talked about his experience from the unbelievable moment that he was taken to jail to the courtroom, where he thinks things should have been done differently. We ended our discussion with Anthony sharing what he does now to fight for criminal justice reform. To play with the facts so loosely that it led to my wrongful conviction. And at trial, did Robert Carter ultimately testify against you, even though even though yeah. he barely knew you and, and you guys really had no dealings on the night of August the 18th, 1992? Did he get up and ultimately testify against you? He ultimately testified against me because what we didn't know is that they had brought Mr. Carter back the night before trial. They brought him prepping back him for his testimony. Right. For his testimony. Mr. Carter was refusing to testify because he said Mr. Graves is innocent. Innocent. So they said they're going to take a polygraph test of him. They never asked him any questions about Mr. Graves. They asked him about his wife. And then they said, well, you know, you failed the polygraph. So you know there's no statute of limitation on capital murder going after your wife. So that's when Mr. Carter decided, I'll give y'all what y'all want. We didn't know that Mr. Carter was back there refusing to testify on the grounds that I was actually innocent. We found this out 10 years later. So, so this was not was, disclosed to you or your attorneys that no. on the eve of his trial, Robert Carter had effectively confessed to the prosecution that you had nothing to do with this case and that he was effectively wrongfully accusing you. And come to find out, that was about the umpteenth time he had confessed this. The night that he initially lied, throughout when they had him in jail and the night before and the morning that he was scheduled to testify during the trial. He was refusing on the ground that he said, this man is innocent. But, now, Anthony, but, did you ever get a chance to talk to Robert face-to-face and ask him, hey, you know, why are you fingering me for this crime? Did you ever, did you ever get that answer from him? Do we know? Or it just seems odd for somebody to, to point to somebody they hardly know. Well, let me just say this. It might seem odd when, when you're in custody and you're being interrogated by law enforcement who has made up their mind that you're guilty and they're not hearing nothing else. It's very intimidating. So I don't blame anyone for saying what they say in those moments because it's very intimidating. But the fact of the matter is he did come back and correct the record the same night. And that's the part they didn't want to hear. Now, did I ever talk to him? About, I would say, 10 years later, we were on death row together, and they oh. had put us on the same part. And they had put us in the same red group. 
And my neighbor had told me, hit on the wall and said, hey, man, I think they got that dude in the red group. I said, what dude? He said, that dude that lied on you. The next morning, we went out to the red group. They brought him out to the red group. And he was out there before me. When I walked through the gate, I walked right up to him. And by the time I got halfway to him, he said, man, I just want to apologize to you and your family for lying on you. And I said to him, I said, man, I don't even want to know why you lied. Because whatever reason you lied, I'd rather for you to tell either my attorney or the press or the state. All I'm going to tell you is this. You and I can't be in the same red group together. Hey, man, I, I forgive you, but that's for me. And that allows me to move forward, but we can't be in the same group. Do you understand that? He said, yeah, I understand that, man. And I don't know how you feel. I apologize to him. And he walked over to the gate and he told the officer, also, I need to get out of this red group because I lied on that man in trial. And I also opened up the door and let him get out. And I never seen him again. And how did you keep your composure? How did, when, now this is something that's not necessarily in any of the articles that we've read. So this is, this is something, I, at least for me, I'm learning first time talking to you, which is very, very interesting. So you meet Robert Carter on death row 10 years after you've been wrongfully convicted based on his testimony. Testimony mm-hmm. that it sounds like was perjured testimony, was untrue. So you're meeting him in the rec yard. How did you not just... How'd you not deck him? I mean, most of us would have wanted to just take a huge wild swing at him and and beat him to within an inch of his life. What what inside of you kept you calm? Well, first of all, let me just correct you and say that it doesn't sound like perjury. It was rule perjury by the Pennsylvania Court of Appeals. In fact, it was perjured testimony. Now, how I kept my cool was at that time, this whole case had become bigger than me. It's just the skeleton that had become bigger than me. It wasn't me anymore, and I had already discovered that. The lies, the manipulations, the games that they played to make this man lie on me wasn't really about him. It was about a system that was broken. And I wanted to stay focused on being able to advocate for that in terms of just being upset because they made a man lie on me that they knew was lying. The system should not allow a man to just lie on you who don't know you, and you lose your life and your freedom. So it was bigger to me than just rival car. It was about a system that had failed to protect me when I was in it. Up next, one of my favorite episodes was recorded from the home of lexicographer, author, and attorney Brian Garner. You might know him from Black's Law Dictionary, but he has written more than 20 books, two of them with his dear friend, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. In this discussion, Brian talked about his passion for the minutiae of legal writing and his close friendship you're, you're with Justice Scalia. So. Before we before we wrap up, I wanted to give you a chance to maybe talk a bit about what you think, looking back, what do you think Justice Scalia's legacy will be? How will history remember him? Well, I do think he is uh, the most misunderstood judge in modern times and probably one of the most misunderstood people in public life. His great legacy is going to be textualism. As Justice Kagan has said, we're all textualists now. All serious judges pay, I I say that, it's not actually true. Mm. I mean, until recently, uh, Judge Posner, of course, was on the bench and he said he's anything but a textualist and he's a consequentialist. But there are three approaches to statutory interpretation 
or the interpretation of any kind of legal instrument, contract, will, whatever it might be. The three major approaches are textualism, meaning we pay very close attention to the words, the syntax, and we look at dictionaries because we want to know what the ordinary meaning of, of words is. So textualists are very close analysts of words, grammar, syntax. Is that strict interpretationist? No, That's no, okay. no. It's a fair reading. So Justice Scalia would disclaim being a, a strict constructionist. A strict, as traditionally meant in legal circles, narrowed, uh, a very narrow construction. And so anyway, he was the quintessential textualist. A very small part of textualism is originalism, which simply means we also want to know what the words meant at the time of enactment. Now, that's pretty uncontroversial, except when it comes to constitutional interpretation. Anyway, textualism is one approach. A second is purposivism. And a purposivist says, don't tell me too much about what the words are and the syntax and that kind of the grammar. I don't. What was Congress trying to do when they enacted this statute? Broadly speaking, what were they trying to do? And purposivism allows judges to go around or behind the words of a legal instrument to get a desired result that they think Congress would have wanted or whoever the drafters were. The third approach is consequentialism. And the consequentialist is not looking back to what Congress intended, but looking forward to what is the best result I can reach, regardless of the words. Look, don't talk to me about words and grammar and syntax. I want to know what is the best result, what is the best gloss I can put on the law, despite what the words say. So that's consequentialism. There are actually very few judges who will openly say they are consequentialist. There are more judges. Justice Breyer is probably our quintessential purposivist today. But I think Scalia's great legacy is that textualism has made great advances that judges everywhere of any political background tend to pay very close heed to the words. And uh, it's a great legacy to have. As many of us know, the legal profession is not immune to addiction. And unfortunately, some of our colleagues will struggle with it during their careers. In this episode, I was joined by co-host Bree Buchanan, the former director of the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program, and our guest, Brian Cuban, a Dallas-based author and attorney who experienced alcohol and cocaine addiction firsthand. Together, we discussed addiction, depression, and how people have made it through those challenging times. In recovery for nine years, and Brian, for you, it's been 11. 11 years, yes. Do you remember the day when you started your recovery? I remember, yes, I do. I, it was my second trip to a psychiatric facility here in Dallas, Texas, after my girlfriend at that time and now wife came in, and we'd only been dating a short time, and found me lying in bed with cocaine and alcohol and drugs scattered around the room. We went to Green Oak Psychiatric, where I'd been once before when I had become suicidal in 2005 as a result of drugs, alcohol, and clinical depression. And so I was standing in that parking lot, and in that parking lot, I really realized that there wouldn't be a third trip back to that psychiatric facility because I'd be dead. Mm. I realized that I was really close to losing my family because families may love us unconditionally, and we hope they do. 
but there may be limits on their willingness to watch us destroy our lives. And if, if we're not going to at least try and take that first step into the unknown, into the scary, into recovery. And I realized that I had really reached that point where kind of the gray area between love enablement and recovery had come together and my family had had enough. And I didn't want to lose my family, my two brothers, Mark and Jeff, I'm very close with, my mom and my dad, and I didn't want to lose that. And I had really started to distance from them because I didn't want them interfering with my drug use and my drinking and all those things. And I don't know why it was that moment and not say, you know, in 2005 where I had to go, you know, with them when they came in my house and I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand and planned on taking my life. Mm. But it was that moment. And the next day I began my journey in 12 step, began getting honest with my psychiatrist. I had been lying to my psychiatrist for a couple of years. Well, why would you lie to your psychiatrist, right? Well, shame knows no hourly rate, right? I was ashamed. I wasn't giving him the truth. And I finally started getting honest and that began my journey into recovery. And since then, it's been a continuous growth process and I am very happy to be 11 years in. Yeah, and I would say that there's no one who enters recovery is going to forget that moment when they finally reach out and ask for help because it is the most difficult thing to do to really get humble and really, like Brian was saying, get honest and be willing to step up and, you know, with what we do at T-Lab, we ask people to, to make a call and ask for help. And it's uh, really, really difficult, especially for lawyers. And it was difficult for me. Uh, T-Lab existed then. I didn't use them. I knew they were... Why not? I knew they were around. I really didn't understand it, though, because there was... I had isolated. I had really lost... You know, I wasn't interacting with lawyers anymore. I didn't know what was out there, although I kind of knew they you know, were there, but I really didn't understand what they were about. And no, none of my colleagues stepped forward at any time to say, Hey, this is what you might consider. I see you're struggling, which is something I talk about today, our obligation to use our gift of empathy to encourage our colleagues to seek help. Why is that? I mean, for, you know, Bree, Brian, either or both of you, why do you think it's hard for those that are, I guess, for lack of a better term on the periphery of somebody who is suffering from these issues. Why is it hard for us to recognize those signs and then step in and intervene? Well, Bree, if do you want to, I, I have my anecdotal experience on that, if Bree wants to jump in. Sure. I think it's really difficult for us when we see a colleague struggling to take the action of stepping forward and asking them, how are they doing and can you help? And there are a variety of reasons for that. One of them is that we think it's none of our business. Uh, we don't want to embarrass the other person. We don't want to embarrass ourselves because still these medical conditions, there's still so much stigma and shame wrapped up that we're afraid to even speak up and have a conversation about this, which is, to me, in my mind, just kind of a crazy situation that we're still dealing with. And people also, you know, besides the just it's not my business, they're thinking, well, I'm not an expert. You know, and lawyers, we like to be experts about everything. And so there's the idea, well, I'm not, I didn't go to law school to be able to diagnose this. So who am I to come in and speak up to this person? So there's, those are a couple of things. And then the idea of um, this is messy stuff and it's painful stuff. And if the person says yes, 
I am suffering from, you know, fill in the blank, then what? We don't feel competent to handle these issues. And what I have also seen, to add a number four to this, is that we project a response. We project a negative response. Mm. We project an angry response. We project mm, yeah. a, I'm going to sue you for defamation response. Right. Right. And so it be, and yeah. rather than deal with the response, it becomes, the path of least resistance becomes to say, it becomes easiest to just say nothing. Our discussion with Brian was very raw and honest. I hope you'll find it as enlightening as I did. Remember, if you or someone you know needs help, the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program is available 24-7 to help attorneys, judges, and law students in need of support. Don't hesitate to pick up the phone and call toll-free 1-800-343-8527. That number again, 1-800-343-8527. Your call is 100% confidential. Or... Go to tlaphelps.org for additional resources. That website, T-L-A-P-H-E-L-P-S dot org. You could help save a life. The 2018 State Bar Annual Meeting gave me the opportunity to meet Sally Pretorius, the current president of the Texas Young Lawyers Association. In this episode, Sally joined me as a co-host, and together we talked to Kendall Hanks and Kristen Bonderplaz, two of the co-founders of the Twitter handle at Lady Lawyer Diary which spawned a hashtag, Lady Lawyer Diaries. Kendall and Kristen discussed how their forum provides a community for women to find support, express issues, and seek inspiration through the work of others doing great things. One of the things that I thought was pretty cool, and Rocky and I were talking about this a little bit offline, but I was just so impressed. I think that now a lot of the issues that women face are very much like seeking that mentorship and encouraging women and, you know, there's that saying that's like, you know, a true friend, you know, doesn't, you know, by supporting another woman, you fix your friend's tiara, you don't tell everybody that you fixed her tiara, you know? And so like all of those kind of quotes and on your, uh, just looking at the feed, you guys do so much supporting of other women. And I thought that that was just so impressive. You, you have some law students who are up here just saying, you know, just got out of my first exam. This was hard. And just to see the support, the outpouring of support on here, I think is just amazing because that might not be available to some of these women in their own personal life. So did you guys kind of see that coming from this or was this just something that sort of naturally progressed from sharing issues? I think this is something that it's gotten a lot bigger than I expected it to. I think those of us who knew each other personally and had sort of formed a friendship just among the few of us, we had tried to be very supportive and, and obviously be mentoring and speaking as a young lawyer. Kendall and Rachel and some of the others uh, got a lot of questions from me for advice, but seeing it really take off in a way that, like you said, Sally, is encouraging the profession as a whole, encouraging people and really trying to shine a spotlight on women in really any profession, but in particular the legal profession who are doing great things. And how encouraging that is, but also on the flip side of that, sometimes it's actually encouraging to realize that you've connected with someone who's having the same struggles that you are, and that kind of imposter syndrome, feeling alone in whatever it is that you're dealing with and realizing not only are there people willing to have your back and support you, but there are people going through that exact same thing. And Twitter and social media as a whole, it can have such a negative effect But in things like this, it can connect me and Kendall 
and people who live in D.C. and San Francisco and UNC professors and realize, oh, we can all talk and we can all support each other in that way. And it's just been really exciting to see it explode and at least hopefully people getting the same thing out of it that we did with our core group, but just magnified on a completely different level. So Kendall, Kristen, you guys have have both alluded to the fact that you had a relationship for a number of years, and I guess Lady Lawyer Diaries has kind of helped that blossom even further. But have any of these interactions, either through the hashtag or via the Twitter handle, have they turned into, in other words, has Lady Lawyer Diaries, the hashtag and or the Twitter handle, have those spawned offline friendships that kind of go beyond social media for, for some of these women? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I laugh because I should clarify, I met Kristen through Twitter. Oh. We were both here in Austin at the time, and I'm a practicing appellate attorney. She was clerking at the Texas Supreme Court. And Lady Lawyer Diaries, it, Rachel Gervich, was, is, all of us are in some way sort of connected to another hashtag called Appellate Twitter, which is also very popular in Texas. It's a hashtag that you know folks talk about appellate practice and cases and grammar and all of that stuff. And Kristen and I intersected in that community before Lady Lawyer Diaries really blew up. And so this is maybe a year and a half ago or so. Okay. And first, and Kristen is so wonderful about bringing people together, and she, she loves to take selfies with lawyers from around the country. <laughs> and so when I argued a case at the Texas Supreme Court, she came, as I was leaving the courthouse, she came running down the steps. She's like, no way you're leaving without a selfie. <laughs> and so... That was actually the first time I met Kristen, and she and I wouldn't have known her had it not been for this community that was already growing on the Internet. And for personal friendships, I mean, all of us consider each other personal friends and have given and needed support from each other in more ways than I could ever describe. I just took a road trip once with a friend who's also here in Austin, who's one of the women we do this with, and she... Uh, we, she and I wouldn't have met. We met through this as well. And she and I took a road trip up, up to Taos, and we stopped in Lubbock to see Kristen, who had just had surgery. So yeah, absolutely, it's it's um, led to some really incredible friendships. I'd wager that not many of you know that Texas has its own Twitter laureate. I'll never forget my wide-ranging conversation with Judge Don Willett of the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. In addition to sharing some tips for using social media, he also discussed the role judges should play in our judicial system and the importance of educating the public about their government. You know, when I was going through law school, I did a, I did a political science sort of graduate degree at the same time. And I've always had a fascination with government, with public service and public policy. And I've spent, I guess now, 22 of my 25 lawyer years working in one branch of government or another on the state or federal level. So I've got a, a fascination with, with government, with how the Constitution divvies up governing power. So those cases, those dealing with kind of building block elemental issues of constitutional architecture, those really jumped out and were of special interest to me. And there were plenty of them then. And maybe even more regular now in my current docket. But, you know, some of the cases we heard on my former court were important, certainly for what we held, but just as important 
in my view as a judge, is why we held the way we did, how we reached that conclusion. Not so much who won, but why. I remember uh, mentioning how my former court, the Supreme Court, is a pretty text-centric court, a court unwilling to revise statutes under the guise of interpreting them. So often, even as important as the holding, you know, who eventually prevailed, was how we got there methodologically. And methodology is, and you really can't overstate the importance of how judges decide. And you know, I have a, a reading list for my incoming law clerks every year. It's a pretty lengthy reading list, but a lot of it is about judicial decision-making, about methodology, about the interpretation of language. Again, that's sort of the lion's share of modern-day appellate judging. So I've got a really keen interest, not so much in, in who wins, but why and how, and how does the court reason its way to a conclusion? That's what makes the judiciary in my view, again, the most elegant branch, we're the only branch really expected to explain why we're doing what we're doing. We reason our way methodically, step by step, to a conclusion, which I find really satisfying intellectually. Do you think that as lawyers, we understand that? Or do you think when we're approaching a case, be it at the trial level or at the appellate level, do we need to do a better job of sort of focusing on the why, not so much that we win, but why we should win. No, I think lawyers as a group get that. I think you know okay. advocates, especially skilled and experienced appellate specialists, you know they get that consummately. I think the general public often they look at who won a case and who lost a case, and then they either cheer it or jeer it based on their own sort of pre-existing policy preference. But I think that just sort of maybe betrays a fundamental kind of misperception about the judiciary. I don't have a dog in these fights. It doesn't really matter to me who wins or loses, but I'm all about, as best I can, doing my dead-level best to apply these principles even-handedly, impartially. But I think there is a fair bit of kind of civic illiteracy, not just about the judicial branch, but about government from soup to nuts. You know, we inhabit an age of really staggering civic ignorance. There's a survey done every year around Constitution Day, which is, of course, in September. And the most recent one found that barely a quarter of all American adults, 26%, could correctly name all three branches of government. Mm. And a full third, 33%, could not name even one branch of government. Wow. 37% could not name one right guaranteed under the First Amendment. Hmm. More people can name the three stooges than the three branches of government. And even a few years ago, there was a, a member of Congress on one of the Sunday news programs who said, yeah, we've got three branches of government. We have a House, and we have a Senate, and we have a president. <laughs> and I'm like... Come on, man. What about what about my branch? What what my daughter called the branch with the costumes. But um, you know, Judge Judy, I think just turned seventy-five and ten percent of American college graduates believe that Judge Judy serves on the US Supreme Court. Oh good lord. Okay. And 
It is one thing not to know dry, sort of arcane factoids like the year the Constitution was signed, right? 1787. Mm -hmm. Sure. But it's petrifying that so many of our fellow citizens, they flub even the most foundational concepts like separation of powers and checks and balances. So, I mean, the first three words of the Constitution are we the people, not we the government, not we the judges, not we the subjects, not we the anything else. It's we the people. And Justice Brandeis in the last century, I think he put it well. He said the only title in our democracy superior to that of president is that of citizen. You know, ultimate authority rests with us, meaning government is only going to be as great or as responsive as we demand it to be. In this constitution we have, this exquisite charter of freedom, Madison's handiwork, it is it requires fierce defenders and not feeble spectators. So I think we have to get back as a nation, we have to get back into the civic education game. We have to educate young people about our constitutional heritage. How do we as lawyers do that? I think lawyers are uniquely suited, given their legal horsepower, given their familiarity day to day with the building blocks of how government works. But hopefully lawyers can be inspired by people like Justice O'Connor. Since leaving the Supreme Court in 2005, she has devoted her life to civic education, and and she doesn't pull any punches. You know, she says, I think this is a pretty accurate quote, knowledge about our government is not handed down through the gene pool. And she's right. This is not mm-hmm. something hardwired into our DNA as Americans, the habits of citizenship. They must be taught and learned anew by every generation, just as you would teach and learn math or reading or a foreign language. And President Reagan said, freedom is never more than one generation from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. And that's true. There was a recent survey that asked American adults 10 questions from the U.S. citizenship test that is given annually to immigrants every year to, you know, who want to become mm-hmm. Americans. So a recent survey asked Americans 10 questions from the test. Do I even want to know? (laughs) I don't think so. I hope you're sitting down. 71% could not identify the Constitution as the supreme law of the land. 63% could not name one of their U.S. senators. 62% could not identify the governor of their state. And this is sort of my hobby horse now, and it's sort of what I speak about most often around the country. And I just try to tell people that American citizenship is immeasurably precious, but it is not a spectator sport. What a fascinating talk with Judge Willett. If you listen to the whole episode, you will hear how his mom inspired him by essentially walking to the moon and back. I won't ruin it for you. Just tune in. By the way, the State Bar's Law-Related Education Department provides a broad range of services to help educators teach Texas school children about civics and the Constitution. There's clearly a lot of work to do in that area, so perhaps we have another New Year's resolution right there.
Everyone knows it's important for lawyers to be professional, but did you know it's also important for us to have a sense of humor? I sat down with lawyer and Texas Bar Journal columnist Pamela Buckmeyer at the 2018 State Bar Annual Meeting to discuss the role of humor in the legal profession. And of course, the conversation turned toward her father and my former boss, the late and the great Judge Jerry Buckmeyer. Well, we can do that. Now, you know, the name Buckmeyer is pretty familiar to a lot of Texas lawyers, most Texas lawyers. It's a famous name. It is in certain circles. Um, I love to go around any courthouse in the state, and I will meet someone who remembers my father, remembers him fondly, has got a great story to tell me. My dad was an active lawyer in Dallas and president of the Dallas Bar Association and active in the State Bar Association. And then he was appointed to the federal bench by Jimmy Carter. That's right. So let's let's talk a little bit about your dad, Jerry Buckmeyer. He's a man near and dear to my heart as well. I actually clerked for your dad. Yes, you did. You were an outstanding clerk. <laughs> you obviously didn't talk to him much about me because that that would probably not be the, the description that would best have fit me. But I think I kept him laughing, which is good. You made an outstanding impression. And you definitely go. kept him laughing. Yes, yes. We, we had a lot of fun. And you can impersonate him. And when you impersonate him, it sounds so much like his voice. And of course, my father is late. He passed away. Passed away so in 2009. To hear his voice is just a delight when hey, you do Pam, it. How are you? Good to see you. <laughs> Oh, this is great. Oh, this, wow, this is a podcast. It's going out on the air. This is fantastic. He did some radio spots on behalf of the Texas Bar, and he was trying to improve the image of lawyers in the state of Texas. And he tried to That's you know, hard, tell boy. jokes. That, yeah. To, and um, some people loved it and responded very favorably to it. And some people felt like um, it, it sullied the reputation of the legal profession. And dad would respond, and I know you would agree with me, Roger. Sure. Is that possible? Is it possible we can't to get any sully worse. the reputation? I mean, I think they're, they're giving themselves a little too much credit <laughs> if they think that we're not already sullied. So, have you decided on a New Year's resolution yet? Hopefully our year-end review has provided some food for thought. But here's the great thing about New Year's resolutions. No wrong answers. Now, here's something you can do right this very moment. Let us know how you liked our programming for 2018. We want to know what interests you. Do you have a topic suggestion, a guest you want us to consider? Let us know. And be sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. As we end 2018, all of us at the State Bar of Texas and at the Legal Talk Network want to thank you for listening. After all, life is a journey. We appreciate you tuning in this year, and we look forward to continuing our travels together in 2019. Bye for now, and happy holidays. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. <laughs>